0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, episode 600. Today, Apple turns iPhones into payment terminals, Wayflyer becomes the latest Irish fintech unicorn, and Monzo co-founder tells us all about the company's future and lessons learned so far. All this and much more on today's show. Oh, and before we get started, we just want to tell you about something we're cooking up here at 11FS and hear a quick word from our sponsors.
1: Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com. Forward slash careers.
0: Welcome to episode 600 of Fintech Insider. My goodness, I feel old, um, but luckily I'm joined by an incredible colleague on this special anniversary edition of Fintech Insider News, Benjamin Ensel, Director of Research at 11FS. How do you feel today? Episode 600.
1: Episode 600 is super exciting. I have to say, when you said, Godness, I feel old, but luckily I'm joined by a colleague who is older than me.
0: No, Um, No, you're full of energy Um, and here to get me through the episode. That's what, that's what it's about. Um, (laughs) do you have a favorite episode so far?
1: I think the episodes I love most are the ones where we um, dive into particular fintech markets. So, you know, we dive into France or we dive into sort of Africa or wherever. Um, so those ones are the ones I love most. Um, where we go a bit deeper uh, into a particular market and just have that little bit more time to really dig into what's driving um, fintech in any one of the world's wonderfully diverse markets. Those are my favorites.
0: And oh my goodness, they are diverse. Um, And we are not alone for episode 600. We are joined by some very special guests. Returning to Fintech Insider, we have Alex Marsh, who is head of Klarna UK. Thanks for joining us today, Alex. It's been a big week for Klarna with the launch of your new physical card. How's the reaction been to that?
2: Yeah, it's been incredibly positive, actually, Simon. So um, I think I, I was last with you in July 2020. I just think how much has changed in that time. And actually, interestingly, one area that's changed significantly has been both uh, awareness, but also utilisation of binal now, pay later products. And I think the card for us is the the next natural step to bring those payment methods, which are so popular online, to really bring them into, the, uh, into physical retail, as hopefully the high streets start to recover more post-pandemic.
0: Yeah, let's hope that does happen indeed. All righty, uh, and making a FinTech Insider debut, we have Ruth McCarthy, who is the CEO of Fexco Corporate Payments. Thanks for joining us, Ruth. Uh, tell us a little bit about you and Fexco, please.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Simon. Uh, Fexco is known as Ireland's oldest FinTech, which is, I think, a, a kind of a, a dubious um, a compliment to have. But we've actually been in business now providing financial services as a competitor to banks for over 40 years. And we specialize in providing technology-enabled financial services. So we do international payments, as well as doing things like dynamic currency conversion on card transactions. We also originated the tax-free shopping concept that people would know today. And we are based in Southwest Ireland. So we were also first with remote working way back in the day. So we're champions not only of FinTech, but also of working in remote locations and delivering amazing products worldwide.
0: I'm, I'm imagining like a genealogy of fintech and remote work all roads sort of leading back to uh, to, to, to Ruth and Fexco. that's exciting to have you um, the OGs with us right here um, all right well let's get to the first story uh, this is you know as part of Apple's plan for financial domination world domination uh, they are turning iPhones into payment terminals um, this new feature will allow merchants to accept card payments directly through their iPhones it doesn't require a separate point of sale device. So if you've walked into most stores, they always have that separate device that plugs in the thing that you tap your phone against. The report noted that this feature will be part of a software update in the coming months. So you won't have to go through lots of steps necessarily to set it up. And this follows an acquisition in 2020 when Apple acquired a Canada-based payment startup called MobiWave for $200 million, um, which indeed did allow mobile phones to act as payment terminals. Um, and of course, MobiWave had worked with many other suppliers before, but is now directly owned by Apple. So, top question for me, and I'm going to start with Benjamin on this. Are the Apple moving into the merchant acquiring space? Should Square be worried? Should the banks who do merchant acquiring be worried, Benjamin?
1: I think the regulators should be worried. I mean, to me, this raises massive antitrust, anti-competitive issues. You know, Apple controls the platform. Uh, Apple controls the devices. Apple controls the hardware. Um, is Apple going to give other point-of-sale providers similar access, equal access to the hardware and the software capabilities? Because if not, this is anti-competitive. Um, so to me, the people who should be most worried about this are actually the regulators, because yeah, you know, I've got nothing against Apple. But you know, Apple has a little bit of form here, you know, with NFC and making it harder for other companies to enable mobile payments and you know Apple Pay significantly advantaged Apple compared with other other firms. So to me, this is this is an antitrust question. Is Apple going too far here? Is it taking advantage of its hardware and software dominance to take control of other markets? So I think it's a huge threat to other companies, but I think this is a regulatory issue.
0: Ooh. Ruth, what are your thoughts?
3: Uh, I'm just sad that we're so quick to abandon QR codes. They saved us during the pandemic. We use them to get into venues. We use them to find menus. You know, everybody suddenly realized or remembered how functional they are, and yet still payments are going back to NFC time after time. I think we can all accept that it simplifies and speeds up the point-of-sale experience, but back to everything Benjamin is saying, it's anti-competitive, it creates very tight loops that it's hard to get into. Um, QR codes are so much more interoperable and open, and y- and yet we keep bypassing them every time and going back to NFC.
0: Mm. Uh, NFC, of course, being near-field communication, the chips that sit inside the devices that allow contactless payments to happen, which, uh, as a veteran of the payment space, I remember 2001, 2002. Will Nokia add NFC? Um, 2009, 2010. When's Apple going to add NFC? Like it—it it seems to be the thing that technologists have willed into existence, uh, and yet um, it has always struggled for traction. Alex, there's also sort of uh, rumors and reports that Apple's working on a buy now, pay later service for Apple Pay. You know, do do you see? a threat and opportunity um, with big tech companies to folks like Klarna, but for the consumer as well?
2: So I think two parts of that. One is I'd agree with Benjamin and what Ruth just said about ultimately competition is always a good thing for consumers. And whether that is a consumer story or whether that's, you know, a business, an SME. So I think competition, anything that's impacting or sort of uh, damaging competition is a worry. Same argument, apply that to buy now, pay later. Actually, more competition in the buy now, pay later space is a very good thing. And you see as competition has, you know, really accelerated over the past, you know, two or three years, particularly in the sector, I think about the rate of change that that's driven in our organization at Klarna, both in the UK and globally. So it's that incentive to keep really pushing and differentiating and having that better service for the end customer. So I think ultimately always wants to have environments where there's high competition. What's always interesting with stories about Apple is always like the conspiracy theories and you're trying to sort of second guess or third guess what the kind of, not the it's often not the implication of you know a year's time with something they're announcing it's like five years time with some kind of master plan that is playing around you know everyone so that side of it i find kind of fascinating to try and think ahead where this is leading to
0: yeah, and where do we think it is leading? Because I mean, we saw with the uh, Apple Pay that the Apple was able to come in and sort of work with a lot of the banks who and take a share of their revenue. So you know, the swipe fees or the the card fees, the interchange fees um, that big bank issue as we're getting on every transaction, Apple came in and said to supporters, we're going to take a piece of that, please. And ultimately, the banks acquiesced uh, on that side. Will they have it so easy, Benjamin, do you think from the merchant acquirer side, or have we seen this movie? And what do you think about the uh, the merchants themselves, the sort of the the Amazons of the world, the really big merchants, where where are they going to sit in in, in all of this?
1: So firstly, I think with, with Apple Pay, Apple didn't say we're going to take a piece of it. They said we're going to take the bulk of it. You know, we're going to take a huge slice of it. And I think, you know, so I think personally I think some of the some of the banks were a little bit naive. Um, you know, obviously Apple is a fantastic brand. And obviously I can see a lot of banks wanted to work with them, but you know, I think the I thought the Australian banks, which put up a lot more of a fight, um, were a lot more thoughtful about hang on, how is this gonna change our ecosystem? Um, so you're right, we've seen this movie before. Um, I've got nothing against Apple. I want to make it clear, Apple is a fantastic company that's done wonderful things for people all around the world. However, um, just like other big tech companies, it cannot abuse its power over the the hardware and the software ecosystem to give it a competitive advantage in other markets. I think we're going to see quite a strong reaction to this. You mentioned Amazon. You know, it's interesting. Amazon's public spat that, you know, we talked about on a few previous FinTech Insider episodes, a public spat, um, with sort of Visa over interchange fees. I think you're going to see a very strong reaction from some companies to this. I think you're going to see a lot of lobbying of regulators in North America and Europe and elsewhere on this. Um, because this is a, you know, this is a big game. Uh, you know, there's a, there are a lot of players in this market. Apple has such a strong brand if you combine that strong brand with the power of the, the the hardware and the software settings, particularly if it blocks out other companies and blocks out other innovation, I think that's very, very dangerous. I think we'll see a very strong reaction.
0: Mm, interesting to see. And, of course, Apple Pay has more than 507 million users worldwide. Um, Alex, can they be a financial super app? Can they, can they be that all-in-one-stop shop for finance? It's like everybody wants to be the fintech super app now, right?
2: So, yeah, I've got – I'm kind of getting obsessed with super apps, and I think part of that is when I look at my own phone. I mean, I'm like a, I'm, I'm a bit like OCD with my phone in terms of like I love a bit a few folders. I can't handle like people's like madhouse of their brain presented in uh, the visual of their their phone. Um, so I'm always like foldering. But then I've got to stage where if I go to like my finances app, and not giving away too much, but like you go in and it's like. On um, pages and pages of apps I'm using for like every aspect of my life, from the sort of obviously current account through to mortgages through to uh insurance, pensions, uh card to use abroad, buy now pay later, um my kids' pocket money, it's a nightmare. It is literally and you've got balances sitting in all these places, you're it's administrative, and I think consumers are taking a lot of the burden of the fact that, you know, historically, for example, our core bank, you know you know, uh, current account provider, hasn't provided the greatest services. So we have built these ecosystems ourselves through all these different apps and people are like disrupting. And then what you're seeing now in those kind of satellite ecosystems that the Monzo, Revolites, the Clannas, et cetera, PayPals, are all starting to expand their satellites and actually trying to encroach on that kind of core bank at the center. Um, and I think I'm hoping that we're getting to that tipping point where, you know, an Apple would be another example of that where they'd sit in that ecosystem, Apple Pay, et cetera where it will get to that tipping point where they're eating far enough into the, the core of, you know, our personal finances that actually people will shift from the current account to. And, you know, we're using them on of so the starlings around the edges, but actually to get to mass shift in the center. Again, I think it's a good, good thing. Competition, better service for customers, ultimately better outcomes. It's just that trade-off, innovation and competition. I suppose what we're talking about is with this, you know, uh, terminals pieces. Ultimately, those point cell terminals are so crappy and outdated. Like the concepts of them seem so bizarre. Now, what is the right solution to replace them? This is one solution QR codes we've talked about. But I suppose you know you want to make sure that in innovating, moving away from some of those you know feeling very outdated uh, approaches, that it still does allow competition, so that you know there can be good value for customers at the end.
0: There's an interesting history here that um, a lot of the innovation around that became Apple Pay really comes along when the card schemes, Visa and MasterCard, Namex, allowed card tokenization. In other words, you take the card and now the, a token, a cryptographic encryption sort of token thing that I don't fully understand but have read and long since forgotten and haven't slept enough to really be able to describe adequately, means that that card now lives in your phone. That's Sort of it, and I butchered it. And sorry if you love payments for how I butchered it. But what's happened here is a few years ago, uh, the schemes started working on Payment Acceptance Cloud. So this becomes another innovation that actually comes from the payment schemes themselves that the technology companies have been early to adopt and then have been able to drive a tipping point in consumer behavior. So I do think there's something interesting about who are the companies that can drive change in consumer behavior, and Apple is always in a place where you get to do that, but also a change in merchant behavior. And that's as hard, if not harder, as, as I'm sure you all know, Alex, that um, sort of understanding those problems and dealing with them is, is, is really, really key. And... Um, I want to uh, just kind of get Ruth's closing thoughts on this before we before we move on. How how are you thinking this is going to play out? um, Sort of, uh, I don't know if it was Alex or Benjamin that uh, mentioned this might take a few more years than people uh, sort of initially suspect. It might not be around the corner. But what happens next here?
3: Yeah, I I remember when Apple Pay first came out, uh, they were very clear about the concept that Apple was going to control the entire payment transaction, and then when that didn't take off, they had to embrace cards, or at least that's my memory of how that went. Um, And that's some years ago. And it's taken them all of this time to get to the point where there is wide acceptance and use of Apple Pay. And now they're trying to cover the other side uh, of the transaction. Um, How much, will it take the same amount of time for them to cover the the intermediate parts. So, is there any chance that they will actually disrupt card schemes, or would they even care to disrupt card schemes? Um, I'm not certain about that. I think it's been a very tough learning experience for Apple. Uh, there were a lot of assumptions that if they had control of the the customer experience, then they would control the payments, and that that hasn't actually panned out in the way that that they hoped. It takes a very very long time to cover all of the functions and activities within the kind of payment ecosystem from the point of sale right through to settlement. And at their current rate of progress, I'm thinking, what, another five years maybe before they can pose anything that's end to end. And even then it's going to be in certain markets where they've put in a huge effort. So very excited for Apple. Still very sad that we haven't tried harder with QR codes. I really think there's something there, guys. <laughs> yeah,
0: I love that. That's there's, I really think there's something there. That's that's like the subtext to the whole episode. I, I, that campaign for QR codes, let's, let's bring them back. It's funny, isn't it? Uh, Apple Pay launched in 2014 and now here in 2022, they've got 507 million users across countless markets. It, it's almost, somebody once said to me when I started working in payments many, many moons ago, um, the payments industry moves in seven-year increments and you can sort of see that if the industry itself but startups don't and the innovation around that could be interesting sorry benjamin you wanted to jump in before we close out
1: you said bring them back about qr codes right you've been to asia right yeah i mean you know i mean qr codes
0: are are widespread it's it's Mm -hmm.
1: europe that isn't using qr codes
0: europe and the us um, yeah yeah exactly and sometimes
3: we think that's the whole world yeah
0: uh indeed, indeed. All right. Uh next story. Um Wayflyer has become the latest Irish tech unicorn after a hundred and fifty million dollar raise. Uh the six homegrown Irish tech unicorn, um, and also the fastest to achieve that accolade. So take that, Collinson Brothers. Um, Founded by Aidan Corbett and Jack Percy in uh, September 2019, Wayflyer provides e-commerce stores with non-dilutive, unsecured capital. So for our US listeners, think pipe.com. Um, So it offers analytics to help clients improve their sales and performance. And the startup's valued at $1.6 billion after its fundraise. They have more than 800 customers in 11 countries. Um, And in addition to adding staff, it said it intends to use the financing to increase the amount of capital it provides to clients and expand into new territories. So selling equity to lend is is always tricky, but um, I imagine uh, debt facilities are still somewhat hard to come by if you're a young fintech. Ruth, coming to you first on this, would you mind just kind of contextualizing this in the Irish fintech scene for us?
3: Yeah, the Wayflyer deal, I think, is a part of an overall story that's happening about Irish fintech. We do have emerging smaller businesses. Um, they tend to be quite specialist, bringing a lot of engineering um, to particular problems within the fintech scene, and they're getting a lot of attention in recent years. So um, Wayflower is an example. We also have businesses coming in uh, from InsurTech and RegTech. They tend to be taking very discrete problems, a uh, very strong engineering approach, uh, and then, um, I suppose, offering value in terms of their problem-solving that's drawing this attract. Uh, that's attracting this attention and resulting in this investment. So this isn't happening kind of out of nowhere. If you look at the history of Irish um financial services, particularly payments. We had businesses like RealX um, emerging back in the day, enabling online payments. Uh, OmniPay, which is now part of Fiserv, um, doing payments processing. So there's a really strong um, ecosystem and a lot of strong payments engineering experience in Ireland. And now it's being applied in these new ways. So um, it's great news. I think it's it's fitting well with the overall context in Ireland. It's a sign of what's due to happen soon. Something I think is really interesting about Wayflyer is that connection to Atlanta. And that's um, not unique. You have quite a few um, people involved in payments in Ireland who are very closely linked to the US payment scene, very connected to what's happening in Atlanta. And I think more and more payments uh, technology businesses in Ireland will develop those links so it's, um, it, it's good. It's a reflection of something we've been building towards. And I think it's a very positive sign for some good things that are going to come down the track from other fintechs in Ireland.
0: Yeah, Atlanta has been a big, big hub for payments in the U.S. for for many, many years, and of course, so many of the big companies there, and uh, then uh, sort of the link to to uh, to Ireland as well. Uh, just before I move on, as well, sort of, how how do you see this uh, in the context of Brexit and the wider European sort of fintech uh, scene that is that is emerging? Uh, sort of Ireland, I always think of the, as being the 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 canonical country that punches above its weight um, but it's also from a timing perspective you know fintech is spreading throughout the continent what do you think some of Ireland's island's uh, advantages and, and pros to to what's uh, leading to this acceleration?
3: Yeah it's interesting post-Brexit we are the only native English speaking country in the European Union so it's if you are based in the United States and you're thinking of getting that stepping stone into Europe, Ireland is a natural place to look. We would previously have been dismissed as being kind of a, a low tax jurisdiction. And obviously our corporation tax rate was something that um, you know we, we used as a selling point for foreign direct investment. But um, changes to corporation tax in the last year haven't had a significant impact in interest from US investors or people interested in starting businesses in Ireland. So I think there's a lot more to what we have to offer. Obviously, being English speaking, uh, being very business oriented, that helps The talent, I think, is the other major thing. So the fact that we have this ecosystem, um, there are a lot of people building up relevant skills. We have Google and Facebook based here. So there's a lot of um, technology know-how. There are a lot of people active on the scene. That's all leading, I think, to that enthusiasm for the Irish market. Um, Brexit, we'll see what it's going to mean for Ireland long-term. It has led to a flurry of applications, for businesses to authorize their European operations here. Um, it, it remains to be seen how that's going to pan out. I think um, the last thing that the Irish authorities or Irish business people would want would be for Ireland to be a jurisdiction of convenience. You know, you want to be adding value and delivering something new that's um, delivering a better experience for customers ultimately.
0: Yeah, you want to be a lot more than, and I mean this with respect to anybody listening in Delaware, but you know, Delaware being the home of the the C Corp um, and often not necessarily capturing the offices and in the industry and the employment that sits around it, um, whereas uh, sort of Ireland has the talent to be able to employ the people around those licenses, as you say. Alex, what are your thoughts as you, as you look at this story?
2: So, yeah, a few parts. One would be... I mean phenomenal growth in terms of you know if they from what I've been reading sort of went live in April 2020 to then get to the point where you know 800 clients using them across 11 countries so what does that show a lot it shows i think so much scope to still disrupt in the, the like business lending like SME lending you know i think it's lagged way behind what you've seen in consumer lending so you know i think what's happened here is you know a business is providing those services plus the value add of the insights and analytics around it which leaves many of their traditional not necessarily purely irish but you know international lenders like way behind so i think that's one theme it shows one it clearly shows is the kind of excitement behind fintech capital that's available and you know is driving you know very strong valuations which i think is evident and then i would echo you know recentiment around you know shows the strength of um like the technology capability and talent in, in Ireland, which is absolutely evident, it has been, you know, for many years and attracted some fantastic companies to HQ, you know, U- European HQs. And that becomes a bit like we've seen in Sweden with Klarna, like that becomes self-fulfilling because ultimately, you know, you've got very strong universities, strong ed- education in, you know, in Ireland, really concentrate around Dublin. But then when you're also um, not just retaining local talent, but becoming this magnet for talent from around the world, then, you know, really starts to grow more and more people attracted to, you know, engineering STEM subjects at university and it keeps flowing through. So yeah, it's exciting.
0: And if you get companies hitting successful exit or even getting close to big raises and, and the employees and the staff are able to get secondary, they get enough runway so that they can go found their own thing. You see the, the spin-outs of, you know, big successful companies spins out lots of smaller ones and that from that an ecosystem grows. I, I don't know how many ex-Monzo startups I bump into on, on a weekly basis, but there are so many ideas that were born in Monzo that are now a whole company and, and that is sort of what creates your own your ec- ecosystem to some degree. Benjamin, thoughts on this one from you and especially this type of lending, this sort of revenue-based finance. There's some some innovation here, but uh what are your thoughts? Are there some risks there too?
1: Yeah, I mean there's there's always a risk with lending, right? Are you going to get the money back? Um I think the, re- the revenue-based lending is, is 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 clever. If you're using the data from the merchant, if you can see the merchant's sales and you can see how their business is performing, you can start to reduce that risk because you can start making better assessments of those merchants. And I think that's why, why we're seeing fintechs moving into that gap. I think, Alex, you're spot on in saying, you know, um, Traditional companies were slow. Traditional banks were slow to see the small business lending opportunity. You know they had problems after the financial crisis, but they were just slow to tap into it. FinTechs have got been much smarter at saying, "Hey, we can look at the transaction data. We can see what's going on in those companies, and we can pick the better risks." Now, of course, you never quite know until you hit the next, you know, recession whether you've got your lending portfolio right. Um, but. If you're using data and you can see the sales, you can see which of the businesses that you can lend to are more successful. So to me, the key to this is data, having that data Mm. on their portfolios.
2: I think I linked to that. What you see, you can see the value here is that if you get it right and you actually are solving that problem well, how we, how you can translate that from into multiple markets, hence how they've managed to get, you know, live into 11 different markets, you know, maintaining that presence and and focus in terms of their people, their human capital in, in Dublin. So I mean, it's kind of incredible.
0: It's scalable uh, if you can get the uh, the hardest thing is getting access to enough credit to be able to lend. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you work through an example, if I can see your Google Ad spend, I can see your accounting platform, so I can and I can see your Stripe payments and I can see your bank account through uh, Open Banking. I can literally see somebody how how well your advertising is performing and how much that's converting into sales i know can also then just take uh the lending directly off the sales which is what a lot of people do is they charge you 6% of revenue until the loan is paid back which when i spoke to a banker about that they were like well technically that's uncapped apr so you know what apr would you publish which is an example to me of where FinTech sometimes doing interesting things with data could actually be the right outcome for merchants, could be the right outcome for customers, but isn't compatible with regulation. And I think we need to be thoughtful on both sides with regulation, like thoughtful about the risks we're trying to prevent, but also thoughtful about the calculations we use and and are they actually benefiting us all of the time in all of these circumstances? So it's gonna be um, an interesting one to watch. And and of course, I know uh, Binary Pay Later Providers like Cloudera know a little bit about data and and that sort of space.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you think so, one of the an interesting part linked to this is ultimately there will be the the debt available to get to these businesses. One of the challenges here is is about yeah you know, it's about distribution and risk assessment. And actually, what they're doing here, I can imagine, will become a gateway for some of the traditional lenders who aren't necessarily building the technology to get to these customers to make the right risk decisions. You could see a situation where they become the funders to a company you know like this to reach those say SMEs or e-commerce businesses and whether you know globally where they can add value. I think like an interesting one that you see Ireland not dissimilar to the UK is is that back to that point I I saying up front about competition, like what you're seeing here is that the benefit of innovation to drive competition. I think there has been, you know, see from the Irish market where, you know, post-financial crisis, you know, a significant reduction in the number of, lend, you know, banks and lenders and actually... There is an opportunity there where you know, these markets can become stale where you know, exactly as shown here, you know, there's demand for these products, you know, it's just providing them, you know, reaching those customers, providing it in a way that is easy for them, which isn't a huge burden to them too, in terms of meeting the requirements, ticking all the boxes.
0: Uh, it's interesting how e-commerce businesses might not have fit, uh, neatly into a traditional underwriting model and actually this is an innovation around underwriting model more than anything and it's good to good to see that because ultimately that is owned by the lender um so long may we see more and more of this type of innovation but let's hope um that that we do see this continue to survive the cycle especially as interest rates rise and, and potentially we, we enter choppy choppy markets already uh we are just going to take a Quick pause here whilst we hear from our sponsors. We'll be back shortly.
1: FinTech Meetup is the world's largest fintech meetings only event. That's right, no speakers or content, just 3,000 participants having 30,000 online meetings that lead to deals, partnerships, and funding. If you're a fintech, bank, investor, credit union, or anyone else working in this space, you need to join. Fintech Meetup takes place online March 22nd to 24th. Go to www.fintechmeetup.com to learn more and get your ticket.
0: Okay, welcome back, everybody. It's time to hear a very special interview we had with Monzo. Benjamin, do you want to take it away? Thank you, Simon.
1: So I caught up with Jonas Tempelstein, uh, co-founder and chief technology officer of Monzo, earlier this week to talk about how things looked back in 2016 when Fintech Insider first launched. So we talked about what are the current challenges and what does the future hold for the Hot Coral card. So, marking this very special 600th episode, we decided to sit down with one of the biggest names in fintech, who we've been chatting about ever since we began back in 2016 and likely will be discussing for many years to come. I'm delighted to welcome Jonas Temple Stein, co-founder and CTO of Monzo Bank. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing?
4: Uh, yeah, really good. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Benjamin, and um, uh, congratulations. You know, six hundred episodes uh, in six years is uh, it's quite the milestone.
1: Well, I think you know Monzo Bank has had a, a huge number of milestones of its own, so um, we should really be congratulating you. But thank you. Um, <laughs> okay, so let, let's let's cast let's begin by casting our minds um, all the way back to 2016 um, when we at 11FS were first setting up our microphones and we covered Mondo's newly acquired banking license in Fintech Insider episode six. What was the vision for for Mondo now Monzo um, at, the, at that point?
4: Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's super interesting. So so six years ago, so that was. Um that was just before our first birthday so we're we're seven, 7 years old now and um you know the the vision at the time and I, and i think reflecting back on this this is really quite remarkable it's it's exactly the same as the vision that we have now for for our product um, in the end state you know uh, Monza was born out of a frustration we as users of, of most of our um, financial service products felt and um, that we, the user experience was just not at the level that we were expecting and the um you know, the product vision was always one of getting full visibility and control over all of your finances in one place. And, and it's, it sounds like a lot, but actually when you break it down, all you have is, you know, you have transactions, buying, selling things, money movements, you've got investment savings, pensions, you've got borrowing all kinds of different lending products, uh, you've got um, insurance products, and you've got uh, budgeting and, and, and analysis, and then some people have advice. And that's literally all of it. And we want to have all of that in, in one package. And honestly, that hasn't really changed. I do, a, you know, I do a session with all new starters at Monzo called What is Monzo? On the second day they start. And that's exactly the same slide that um, we would have used at that point in time. And um, yeah, I'm just trying to think, what, um, what were we doing? We're handing out cards in, in our office
1: yeah because I mean that, that year was when you did you, you set the record for the quickest crowdfunding campaign in history because you, you raised a million pounds in sort of 96 seconds so you know that, that vision that you had clearly resonated with users then and and, and and still now
4: yeah and I think the interesting thing is actually though that um, at exactly this moment in time six years ago probably we weren't even really planning to do the crowdfunding I think there's um, th- there's something about the early stages of a startup where you just have these, these emergent things. That, that go well, that weren't necessarily in the original plan. And so this entire idea that we have um, a, a community that is a key part of our identity and our story, to a certain extent, we always knew that we wanted to be community-focused, but that actual group of people that became the community and then became the online community on our forum and and um, you know pushed the crowdfunding and so on, that was actually um, the, the result of us having to invite people into our office to give them cards because we um, – we we only had six or seven engineers at the time, and so we didn't have the ability to to build the experience that you now have where you take a video of yourself and do you, you do all the know-your-customer checks in the app. So we didn't have the ability to build that soon enough, and so we said, well, if we want to grow our customers, and we just invite them to our office and check their ID like you would in a bank branch, and to scale that up to the maximum, we had twice a week about 100 people You know, from from the Internet, from our waiting list of some press that we had earlier the previous year, we just invited them and Tom and myself would just give them some sort of pitch of of this vision and say, hey, you want to try our product and give them some beers and food. And that became the community. I think we did this to about two or three, three thousand people. And then that sort of spiraled into, "Okay, let's do crowdfunding. Let's make the community bigger and so on and so forth.
1: Wow, I love it. I love that just that start We'll just figure out a way, we'll get it done, we'll find a way of, of, of doing it. What, what else have you kept from, from the early days? So you, you know you talked about that, you know, the vision has been the same, you've had that community from, from the outset. What else have you kind of kept hold of from, from the very beginning? What's been the sort of really important? I don't know, sort of principles.
4: Um... Yeah, I think principles is the right theme. Like I think there's there's something in retrospect where the things that worked really, really well seem really, really obvious. And, you know, like I mentioned, this, this approach to community or the or the crowdfunding, but even doing a prepaid program before having a current account or making the, the card an aggressive hot coral color, right? Like all of those things, they emerged and weren't the, the part of some sort of master planning process. And so I think it would be a mistake to say something like, oh, we must always like retain the hot coral card or something. Instead, I think that the right solution is to say what, what was, what were the organizational circumstances that made these kinds of things emerge? And how can we now as a much larger company with over 2000 people, how can we ensure that we can still do that and we can still, uh, you know, capture opportunities and, um, and do things that aren't necessarily in, in the plan or, or almost like how can we conceive things as a company that for example, I or us in management cannot conceive of. And I think that's a big um, issue. And, and, and uh, so that's what I, what we try to capture in terms of ways of working. And like an example of that is something we still have is called Monzo time where, where people can work um, uh, from time to time on things that they are passionate about on the product and our gambling block, for example, and and, and a few other features are really popular they came out of that. And so I think that that way of working and that allows, you know, serendipitous um, uh, things to happen uh, to your company is, is very, very important to retain as long as possible
1: yeah that that gambling block was definitely one of the things that really caught Caught people's attention, um, as are those hot coral cards. I, I I get a tiny bit of credibility from younger people because I actually have a hot coral card, and <laughs> it's funny how younger shop assistants know exactly what it is, and older ones not so much. Um, for those of you who are outside the UK, <laughs> um, can you tell us? Are there any ideas that you had back then that that just didn't work? I mean, what <laughs> were there any sort of catastrophes where you were gonna you, we were going to do this amazing thing and it just totally flopped with customers, or?
4: Um, yeah, I think there were quite a few. Um, I think, for example, um, I remember then, okay, so if this was six years ago, then maybe um, uh, you know five and a half years ago or something, we got to the point where we, where we thought we have pretty strong product market fit, meaning that our product is now so good that customers just absolutely love it and want to tell other uh, people about it and so on. And, and then we just wanted to grow. And um, uh, we didn't really want to spend much marketing uh, because we were a small startup and, and didn't have all that much money and so on. And so... Um, We had spent a whole quarter uh, on something we call Monzo with friends and and our entire product engineering team um, focused on building features that, um, uh, that grow the customer base and, and increase network effects. And the one we chose, You know, we had a big workshop and we said, like, let's stack rank all of our ideas and work on the one that seems the most likely to succeed. And the one we chose was Monzo Me, which we still have. It's a really good feature. It's where you can send somebody a link and then they can pay you using their existing debit card or or through other channels. Um, And then at the end of that experience for the payer, the assumption was that they would have had such a positive experience that... um, that they would just want a Monzo account as well. And so at the end of that experience, it was sort of like a thing that said, hey, why don't you um, why don't you get a Monzo account? And that was um, something that was fairly complex to build because it obviously involved charging other people's um, credit and debit cards. And so that required vendor relationships and an end. But we got it done at the end of the three months. It was a really smooth experience. It was much better than for some competing uh, things. You know, like PayPal had one at the time that was very similar, but this was so smooth and we were so happy with it, but it didn't lead to any growth whatsoever. <laughs> it was because... Um, like like maybe some people that went through that flow, they then thought Monzo was awesome and, and they were going to sign up. But the problem was it was just not something that was used so frequently that you could get real organic growth going. I mean, we all know now from the pandemic that what you really want is that, you know, well, <laughs> what we want what you don't want in a pandemic is that viral coefficient to, to go beyond one, meaning that each person refers on average more than one per, uh, person. And Monzo me was just not popular enough for that. But then one thing that happened, and it's kind of coming back to the previous point, is in the last few weeks of that quarter that we had set aside, and, and this was the fourth quarter, so it was over the holiday seasons, like some people are working during the time, some aren't, you know you know how it is. And some people just put together what we call golden tickets, and it was built in the fastest and simplest possible way, and it was something we had discarded because we thought it was just like such a silly dead simple implementation all it was that after somebody signs up they get somewhere interspersed with their transactions they get a golden ticket in their feed and you tap on it and you can send it to people and they get to skip the waiting list that we had at the time which was kind of like semi, semi-fake semi anyway you know sort of artificial scarcity thing and that feature alone that wasn't the one we had picked then led to literally five percent week over week growth for nine months straight and took us on this trajectory that ultimately led us here um, so, so it's yeah. It, it was it was very rarely the thing that we were most convinced was going to be the game changer that that ended up being it.
1: So the really simple thing was usually successful, and the thing that took all the engineers <laughs> months to build didn't work. That's so frustrating. Okay, so let's move on to sort of some of the sort of current challenges and 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 opportunities. And if we if we just think about sort of fintech more widely, um, you know, maybe fintech in the UK or fintech more globally. What do you see as some of the as, as the sort of biggest challenges? now, um, either for Monzo or just sort of for the sector more widely. Um, are there any things that trouble you? Um, I mean, I think there's
4: one thing that, um, you know, that has changed over the last six years is the, um, the, the, the mainstream awareness of, of, of blockchain and crypto to, uh, um, has uh, increased significantly. And so there's a big question of how does that fit in? with the kinds of products we're building and how does that fit in with a, the with a, um, traditional financial service industry. So I think that's an interesting one. I would say that like in general, you know, if, if somebody was was looking to, to, to build fintech products, it's I, I don't think it really changes so much year and year what you need to do. It's just, you need to make something people want. You need to build something that some population of people really, really, really like. And then you have to find more people like that. And I think there's still loads and loads of opportunities to do that. I think, compared to other markets outside of finance, I, I still think um, that uh, you know, as Mark Andreessen I would have said, like software has not yet eaten the world, um, and there's still there's still a lot of opportunity for that. To happen.
1: I was interested. In you, I was interested that you touched on on crypto there because um, your, your fellow co-founder Tom Plomfeld. Um I think said so this said the other day he he said he felt that you know Monzo had maybe missed out on on crypto and, and and stock trading. Do you do you agree with him on that? Do you think do you think that was a sort of a mistake or a miss for Monzo? Um
4: I think I think it's it's uh, it's pretty complex. I, I honestly don't know. Like one of the things that that um I find most surprising about um about that crypto phenomenon is that it sort of neatly divides, or seems to divide, the world into two groups of people that are 100% certain of diametrically opposed things, right? Like with one group <laughs> believing 100% certainly that is going to transform every aspect, every fabric of our society in you know immeasurable positive ways, and and then another group saying it's like it's like a total it's a total Ponzi scheme and a scam. And I think in reality, it's, it's the way I think of it is there is a, a set of new technologies that are in their, in their infancy that can be um, potentially very, very interesting, but there's also a lot of potential for abuse. And um, whether or not we should have been faster on it, I think is really hard to say because I think there, there was certainly a, um, a very large revenue opportunity missed, but I think you would also have to look at the um, at, you know the customer outcomes um, of the companies that have jumped on the bandwagon um, a few years ago and whether they have all benefited in the end. Um uh, yeah, So, so it, it's unclear. But the one thing I will say is that, um, you know, if or, or whatever direction the, the journey of crypto takes um, in the future, I think there is a good chance that it will fit in somewhere alongside other, other financial services. And if we're talking about building a, uh, a financial control center that gives you visibility and control over all of your finances, then absolutely um, crypto would have to have a, a place in that.
1: Yeah, so that was what I was thinking. I guess you know there's an inevitability to comparisons between Monzo and sort of Starling and Revolut. You know, so if one of those two does something and you don't do something, you know, it's inevitably going to create some sort of comparisons, and you can sort of look and see how did that how did that go for you know your your sort of near competitors. Um, Tom Blomfeld was obviously a, you know a, a big influence over over the first you know five years of Monzo. You've been Without him for about a year, obviously, you know, co-founders move on. You know, our own Jason Bates moved on very quickly. Um, have you have you missed Tom? Has it has it sort of changed things not having his his voice there?
4: Yeah, I think it's a very interesting question. I think um, you know, like twenty twenty, uh, you know, for, for me personally, and for Monza as a company, and I'm sure for many people listening to this as well, has been a, a a pretty challenging year with lots and lots of different changes. And so it's it's pretty difficult in my mind, I guess, to separate. You know separate one from um, uh, one from the other um, also my uh, my daughter was born I think uh, I think Tom told me one day after <laughs> one day after she was born that he was leaving and then we had uh, you know a lot of a lot of new executives uh, uh, joining and very were trying very very quickly to to ship those new products with, which we then hashed um, uh, quite successfully um, in a short period of time and uh you know j- just as a company doing all of that whilst working out how to work remotely for the first time um yeah i think it it, it, it was definitely a very um a period of change and to be totally honest on account of the the sleep deprivation for my daughter <laughs> it's also kind of all all bleeding into each other it was a um it was it was quite a stressful time frankly, but it was um you know at the end, i think it was one of those times where you come out of it. Uh, just like objectively much 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 um uh, stronger as as a business and and perhaps um individually than you went in
1: I think um any other uh young parents of young children listening to the podcast can certainly empathize with the sleep deprivation it's really hard working through that um any any other lessons from from the pandemic for for Monzo? I mean, you talked about you know how you've come through as a sort of stronger organisation from a whole series of changes. Um, anything else from the pandemic? I mean, you talked a bit about you know people working remotely and so on. Any, any other lessons for, for you as a business from from the pandemic?
4: I think there's maybe something interesting about um, just like that that certain kinds of pressure can be really really beneficial. You know, I've mentioned earlier that we've we we found really strong product market fit early, and to a certain extent you know, that has carried us very far and has allowed us to perhaps not um, not build certain uh, certain skills or muscles as a business that then in 2020, because um, for the first time we were under some economic pressure as well, uh, we had to build very, very quickly. And I think um, in 2021, you know, throughout the 2020, we doubled our annual revenue run rate and then we doubled it again in 2021. So I think there's um, um like a lot of, a lot of muscles were built very, very quickly that we were just missing as as a business, and um, I think that is interesting because maybe before 2020, I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought that um, you know we we would benefit from from putting ourselves under that kind of pressure.
1: Very, very interesting. Okay, let's let's move on and and, and think about the, the the future a little bit. Um, you know, the, the, the future of Monzo, and I'd love to start by. Um, Hearing about your vision for investments, because you know, as a business, you've you've recently started advertising for general manager investments. You and I have just talked about sort of crypto and and stock trading briefly. So you're you're planning to sort of build and, and run a new investments and wealth business, and obviously that fits into to, you know to the vision you, you had from the outset of a sort of control center. Sorry, I can't remember the exact term you used. Control center for your finances. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your your intentions there?
4: Yeah, I mean it. It, it was always the um, it was always sort of the uh, one of the natural next steps to, to explore. You know, if you think back to what I said about okay, so you've got kind of transactions, payments, movements of money, and then you know um, you've got a borrowing, obviously, where I think we're a little bit ahead of um, uh, compared to savings investments. But then a big part, you know, for, for people that have um, uh, some uh, some money to manage or that they want to put to work, um, which is which is also, by the way, a meaning of our. Of our uh, mission to make money work for everyone, like you know, one of the one of the underlying meanings is that you, you put your money to work. And uh, so far in the app, we've we've only really had the um, uh, the cash savings pots, but there's a lot of other products um, depending on on people's risk appetite and the preferences and so on that we know our customers are investing in, and where you would benefit massively uh, if you had it all in in one place. And so. Um, I'm really really happy that that um, after the last couple of years' we're, we're now in a position where we can just tackle these these things that we knew for a long time we wanted to put in the product and um, I'm quite excited um, you know without going too much into too much detail but I think we'll we'll um, find a way to to do it in a very monzo way um, to help our customers just um, uh, improve improve their financial wealth and make their money work for them.
1: I, of course, want to ask you all the detail, and I appreciate you may not be able to share it. Um, But, you know, you've you've partnered with Oak North um, and and others on some of the cash savings products. Um, Obviously, Starling Bank has, you know, worked with a number of partners in in a sort of more of a marketplace. Do you think your investments approach is likely to involve other companies as well, rather than you setting up your own sort of investment management subsidiary? Or is that even that sensitive?
4: I mean, like, I I think, um, you know, without going into too much detail on that, but I do think philosophically... I think it is relatively important that you on some level give, give customers access to the competition that is offered in the marketplace, because otherwise it's just impossible to align incentives with the customer, right? Like if you want to avoid the fate of other banks, you want to make it so that you benefit if the customer benefits. But if you're ever in a position where you feel like you, you have to kind of like withhold the fact that there's a much better deal over Mm -hmm. there from your customers, I think you're already on the back foot. And so so just in, in, you know, in anything we built, we don't want to be in that position, really. Um, uh, and, and I think, yeah, any, anyway, like, uh, I think that is a very important philosophical thing where, where compared to uh, high street banks and, and, and legacy organizations, it's very important to me that we can, uh, over time, build a business where we benefit if our customers benefit, not we benefit if our customers don't know that they can leave us or some, you know, something of that nature.
1: Yeah, yeah. I absolutely love that. I always think one of the dirty secrets of the retail financial services industry is that a lot of the money is made from customers not quite knowing what they're doing and, and, and certain firms you know, taking advantage of that. So I, I love hearing how you describe it. All right. What about the, the sort of next generation of fintech users? You've obviously got a big base of existing fans and customers and a community and so on. How do you appeal to the sort of group beyond that? People are maybe not so interested in fintech. Um, how do you get some of the people who are still stuck at established banks? How do you… Breakthrough, and I get that you're the CTO, not the head of marketing. So maybe an unfair question, but <laughs>
4: um, oh, interesting. So, so do you mean like uh, like next generation, as in as in uh, younger people, or next I... generation as the people that haven't got Monzo yet?
1: The next generation of Monzo users. So that could be older people who haven't got Monzo, or younger people who are only just coming into bank accounts now.
4: Yeah, so I think I think there's then there's two two different prongs to the answer. I think you know, like one one thing is um, 16, 17 year olds are a fastest growing demographic, and I, I think. Um, you know, I think at the moment at the, at the for the people uh, that are opening their first bank accounts, I think we're doing fairly well, but equally something we're very, very awake to is that, you know, almost by definition, things that are trendy and on vogue one moment will become not trendy and not on vogue the next moment. And, and so that is something we we need to uh, stay, stay on top of. But at the moment, I would say we are, uh, we're doing pretty well on, on that end of the market. I think for, um, um, for for um, older users, so the average age of our um, customers is is uh, something like thirty two, and obviously changes slightly over time. Um, and I think um, I think it is in our interest to um, increase that and make it the average age of the population, because we do have an ambition to make money work for actually everyone. And I think there, what it comes down to is just uh, broadening out the product offering and making it so that more of the financial needs of um of different um, different uh, demographics you know um, with with just a larger number of financial services in their lives um, are served through the monzo app so it's sort of yeah which which obviously wouldn't really be as relevant to to you know your your uh, 17 18 year olds
1: all right, love it. Okay, last quick question for you. Um what about the the US? Um, you know, Monzo had plans uh, to sort of do a soft launch in the States and so on, and then and then you kind of withdrew your application for a US banking license. Obviously we've seen other European digital banks like N twenty six um sort of getting a little bit burned and, and struggling in the States. Um, what's your current thinking about Monzo US?
4: Yeah, so I think I think the most important, it's, it almost comes back to the question of, you know, what's what's the challenge in fintech in, in 2022? It's like, what's the perpetual challenge for anybody making any kind of product or service? It's you have to make something that people actually want, and that solves a problem for them. And I think, um, you know, w- one thing I've realized that, you know, Mums is the biggest company I've ever worked for, and I never really realized that so crisply, is that if you're a larger company um, try, trying to enter some new market or do some new product or, or something like that, um, I think there, there is a there is just a risk that you don't go through the same steps that a startup would go through to find product market fit. And you might say to yourself something like, um, oh, okay, so um, well, let's make a plan. In six months' time, we want to have this many users. In 12 months' time, you want to have this many users. And in two years' time, we want to have this many users. And then you, you kind of like make a product based on some ideas of, of, um, of what it should be like, or maybe if it's international expansion based on whatever the product is in your country of origin. And um you ship you ship that product and you know, a few people use it, but not for long. But because you've made these projections and that's just how you manage your affairs, you just say, okay, let's just acquire the customers, uh, you know, and, and try and get to the number in the plan. And so you acquire your hundred thousand customers for two hundred dollars a pop or whatever, whilst trying to fix the, the product in parallel. And I think that is basically the the path that um that doesn't work, and that that creates a, a relatively large dead pool of, of, of competition. And I think what you have to do instead is you have to say, okay, how can we how can we um, find product market fit in that market in the same way that we found product market fit here? You know, acknowledging that maybe the end stage vision is the same, but the um, the entry vector or how you start might not necessarily be the same, and the exact payment. Um, uh, you know, uh, methods whether it's credit versus debit or like preferences of customers might not be the same. Um, and so that's that's uh, that's the approach that um, we're taking, and, and I think um, it's it's looking pretty good at the minute. But it's um, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense what I'm trying to say there. It's a different approach.
1: It makes total sense. And honestly, I think that is such great advice that, you know, that makes this whole podcast and and probably the last 10 podcasts worth listening to because that's priceless advice. It's so easy to think you know what customers want and that advice of think like a fintech and get right back to what is it that creates value for customers is superb advice. Jonas, thank you so much. This has been absolute joy talking to you. Thank you so much for joining this 600th episode. I really, really appreciate your time. Where can people find out more about you?
4: Uh, um, um, well, I mean, I have a Twitter account. It's, it's, uh, it's just Jonas. So, um, but I very rarely use that or most social media, (laughs) but you can have a (laughs) click on it. You can have a look.
1: (laughs) Okay. Fantastic. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And now back to the rest of the show.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Jonas. And thank you, Benjamin, for that. Uh, Really, really interesting to see both how far we've come and uh, where we've still got to go. Uh, Back to the news show, we have some other stories that we didn't have time to cover that still deserve a bit of a shout out. So, Benjamin, do you want to lead us out here?
1: Yes. So, the first story comes from AltFi. And this is that Jack Dorsey's block completes its $29 billion afterpay acquisition. So Block has completed the $29 billion acquisition of Buy Now, Pay Later lender Afterpay. Block, which is headed by Twitter founder Jack Dorsey and owns the Square and Cash apps, has acquired all of the issued shares in Afterpay. This will allow its merchant customers in the United States and Australia of all sizes to offer Buy Now, Pay Later at checkout. Afterpay's customers will have the ability to manage their installment payments directly in the Cash app And Cash App customers will now be able to discover sellers and buy now, pay later offers directly within the app. Um, So super interesting conversation, particularly actually in the context of what we were talking about earlier of of, of Apple uh, moving into this area. And of course, I'm conscious we've got Klarna on the call. Um, But to me, this is super, super interesting because this is about the consolidation of fintech. Um, You know, the story a few years ago was, hey, would traditional firms um, collaborate with fintech and so on? Now, I think we've got a really interesting game going on where the bigger fintechs are looking at what are the adjacent needs we can help. You know, how can we combine capabilities of multiple fintechs, not just partnerships, but actually embed those deeply within our own sort of platforms? Um, so super interesting move by Block. And let's see how other firms respond. I'm looking at Alex's face because we can see pictures. But um, super interesting to see how everyone else responds to this.
0: It will be indeed. All right. Another story we didn't have time to cover is following his fiery Twitter tirades, Bolt founder Ryan Breslow is no longer CEO and says it's his choice. So if you didn't see this, uh, last month Breslow posted a Twitter thread in which he compared Stripe and Y Combinator to The Mob. Uh, he said, uh, he, as the founder of the one click checkout company, started as a Stanford student and dropped out of college to build this one click checkout provider, um, and had accused various folks of collaborating and colluding to not allow other startups to get funded, to not allow them to get access to various top-tier VCs, uh, to Y Combinator, and much, much more. So according to TechCrunch, Bolt is currently raising a round of funding that's expected to value the outfit at $14 billion, and that is up from $11 billion last month when it closed its Series E. In his statement, Breslau said that whilst his officially handing off day-to-day management of Bolt, he's going nowhere. Apparently, without going into specifics, he says, I have a lot of votes in the company. It's kind of interesting. If you are a toxic, uh, founder on Twitter, uh, how much the VC world is the chattering class, but also just to take aim at companies uh, and most of the big VCs who might fund you is just a weird, weird flex. Um, but he's known, been known for being outspoken. Um, I don't know all the specifics. Maybe something bad did happen at one point, um, but this did look a little bit like old man yells at a cloud. That was just my perspective. I'm a commentator, wasn't close to it, but a fun one. Um, All right, Benjamin, another story we didn't have time to cover.
1: So this one was in Fintech Futures. The uh, Fintech Isusu, backed by Serena Williams, has hit unicorn status with uh, picking up $130 million in funding to bridge the racial wealth gap. So credit building Wealthtech Isusu has raised $130 million in a Series B round, which values it at over a billion, therefore the unicorn status. Um, What's interesting is it's one of just a handful of black owned unicorn startups in the US and indeed um, sort of across the world more widely. It was founded in 2018. It was initially built to help users save and build their credit. It's since expanded its offering into the rental market, serving both tenants and landlords. Uh, It's available in two and a half million homes, representing over $3 billion in gross lease volume nationwide, according to the company. Uh, The funding round was led by SoftBank Vision Fund and saw participation from new and existing investors, including Serena Ventures. So I, I, you know, I love this story. I love the way that fintech is helping underserved and unserved groups of people all around the world. Um, you know, the United States, of course, such a big, such a wealthy economy. And yet, you know, there are pockets of people who are not served well. Um, so I love seeing this. I love seeing, um, more diverse, uh, more diverse founders. Um, and so, if it's getting credit to people who are not getting credit, you know we know there's there's discrimination. There's some you know there's some laws in the states that try and prevent discrimination in lending, but nevertheless there is still some discrimination. So anything that helps um, create a more equitable society um, is fantastic. So super pleased to see this, and I wish them every success.
0: Here, here. All right, let's bring everybody back for the final section. Uh, we are going to try and have a little bit of fun to round out the show. Um, So we're going to predict what might be the headlines on Fintech Insider episode 6,000, which at our current rate of episodes, we hit in about 2076. So so set your watches, people. don't don't put anything in the oven. It could be uh, could could be just around the corner. But what would the headline of the show be? What subjects will we be talking about? And will podcasts still be a thing, or will we all have neural links and we're just sort of uh, just living in the metaverse as we hold towards the sun? Um, so just to get us started, our social media community suggested a few titles. Uh, title number one was: Will our new lizard overlords accept Bitcoin? Another potential episode title is Metaverse, How All the Legacy Systems Started. I quite like there's some some good ones here. So um, what do you think? Uh, any any episode title ideas that come to mind, Alex?
2: So what's worked probably so 96, which is quite haunting in 2076. Um, so I think one of mine was, you know, I want separate. I want the headline to be that, you know, UK life expectancy has hit over 200 years. That way I'll still be around 50% of life expectancy. I think beyond that, not the three headlines, but I think a topic of mine, if you look back say like uh, 50 years ago, pretty much the same in in the banking space and payment space, it's pretty much like the same banks that are around today. It's all the same names, the lawyers, the Barclays, HSBCs. I suppose like not that much has changed in in that sense um, in that 50 years. I'm hoping, you know, let's fast forward 50 years, that that will be a really different list. I and mean, you know, the stuff we've talked about today in terms of big tech, fintechs, that, you know, the, the top five in, let's really hope the top five in 2076 is a really different list of banks that are really providing, you know, all those services in these lovely super apps, integrated into our lives, saving us time, saving us money, making us worry about less about money and more about having fun and a good life and living to a happy age of 200
0: here ruth thoughts
3: well whatever banks are operating in the 2070s i suspect one of the headlines for a podcast at that stage could be banks to phase out checks um, (laughs) because it just (laughs) seems like it's never ending
0: (laughs) love it ruth and qr and qr codes are really like running at full power will we ever be cashless benjamin
1: um, yeah, I, I like Alex. I was struck my, by my own mortality with the, the prospect of twenty seventy six. I think I'll almost certainly not be here. Um, I think checks will be long since gone. I think it'll all be all crypto. Uh, certainly, if you listen to our new colleague Maurizio, uh, it's, it's it's all going to be crypto by then. I think the, the interesting question will be, yeah, how how does how do payments move? Do we even do we even have systems? Uh, do people even listen to podcasts? Um, though I did hear that I read in The Economist, I think the other day, that Pliny the Elder had someone following along behind him, reading to him. So this yeah. concept, you know, the listening thing may still be happening. Um, but I think people will be consuming media in many different ways, some of which we can't imagine yet.
0: Yeah. It's, it's always the risk, isn't it? Skewmorphism. The fact that we tend to view the future with the context of today. This is why uh, Apple actually intentionally leaned into skewmorphism. All of their apps looked like the physical thing. The news, news app looked like a newspaper. Um, and actually what happens is the mobile changes it so that you see news and video and you get real-time alerts and the context starts to change. And once you live in that context, that becomes normal. So predicting the future with through today's eyes is always very dangerous because we're like uh, 2D objects in a 3D universe. We can't see the other dimensions that we can't yet see or or, or comprehend that they'll enable. That's what always excites me about the future. And that's what excites me about doing a podcast every week is we can't keep up with the news. um, But my goodness, it's good to get an hour every week to just at least try. And that's why it's great being in fintech. Um, If you want more great discussion here on will banks exist in 100 years, what impact will cryptocurrency have on the industry? And will we ever see a central bank digital currency? Check out episode of 11 of Decoding Banks on YouTube. Do check that out. Great work by the 11FS team. Um, And if you want to know all about what happens under the hood with banks, it is the go-to resource. Alrighty, that wraps up this week's show. Thank you so much today um, to all of our guests and Jonas for his time. Uh, Where can people find out more about you? Let's start with Alex.
2: Uh, they can find out more about me on LinkedIn. I'm very prolific, um, producing a lot of content. A uh, lot of my focus has been on regulation over the last 18 months. Um, so yeah, more of that will be coming for us in 2022 as we navigate through regulation of our sector. So yeah, that's something I'm commenting on a lot at the moment.
0: You know, that would be a great name for your memoirs, like prolific on LinkedIn. Uh, just, there you go. Let's, let's make that happen. Uh, Ruth, how about you? <laughs>
3: I likewise, I'm very prolific on LinkedIn, very much looking forward to getting out and about in Ireland as well, meeting people in person on the FinTech scene in the next few months. And of course, uh, you can find more information about Vexco at Vexco.com.
0: And Benjamin, are you prolific on LinkedIn too? I'm
1: not, but I'm thinking I should be. Um, (laughs) I should be more prolific, yes, so I am on LinkedIn. And you can also find out more about me and the work that the the, the team uh, here are doing at 11fs.com.
0: You'll find me at sytaylor on Twitter or at 11fs.com and generally hanging out wherever the fintech news and nerds are. So uh, love to all of you for being fintech nerds. Love to all of you for listening. We made it to 600 shows. Can you believe it? We did it together. But do not stop leaving reviews, whether you're on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever client you can. It helps us so much. So go do it now you're probably looking at your device, you could leave us a review. And if you enjoyed this show, it really, really does help us. Thank you so much and goodbye for now.